Hey, what's up, guys? It's me, Chris Powell, and I just want to say thank you for listening to this podcast. We absolutely love this community, and we want you to know how much that means to me and Matthew. So today on our podcast, we're going to be switching things up just a little bit. So in the podcast world, they call what's about to happen a podcast swap. So today, I'm going to feature my friend and partner in this experience, Matthew Blades. So Matthew walked away from this successful radio career to start the podcast and speaking series called Learn From People Who Lived It. And the episode that you're going to hear today is with uh, an incredible doctor, Dr. Tao and Matthew, and it's called How To Be Happy. So Matthew's guest, Dr. Tao, he launched the world's first fully accredited master's degree program at in happiness at Centenary University. So Dr. Tao, he's an expert in his field having received his Bachelor's of Arts in Philosophy and Psychology, and then his PhD in Organizational Behavior from Harvard. So he's a really smart dude. He's also a national squash champion, FYI. Now, when the episode is over, stay tuned so I can tell you how to get a free membership to the Kept app, which is, of course, my brand new app, and the blood, sweat, and tears that I've spent two years creating the most incredible transformational app for you. So please enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave a review where you listen to the podcast. And of course, follow us on Instagram at I needed that podcast. Find learn from people who lived it wherever you get podcast, search it using all one word, learn from people who lived it. Welcome to another episode of learn from people who lived it. Oh man, here we go. This is Dr. Tal Ben Shahar wants to be addressed by Tal for this interview, which I'm looking forward to right now. We're going to cover so many different things, but let's start with where are you in the world right now? Uh, right now, I'm in Bergen County, New Jersey. Okay. And this is where he lives because he has a master's program that we're going to talk an awful lot about. I've actually got it scrolling there at the bottom of the screen for anybody that's watching at any point. If you get so bored with us, you want to go check out what he's doing, by all means, uh, tear that up. Now, I want to start our interview today, and I want you to almost imagine, you know, those word clouds, Tal? Okay, so he, I mean, I'm going to throw out some words. Here we go. I'm going to throw out some words that I see in the word cloud as I think about you. Squash, <laughs> championships, philosophy, Columbia University, Singapore, Harvard, psychology, military, Israel. When I say all of those words, which one are you sort of drawn to jumping into first? Oh, wow. Um, so you summed it up well. I don't know if I have much to add, but uh, I guess I, I'll elaborate on squash. All right, let's go, because you because, are a phenomenal squash player. Well, I, I was. So here is the thing. you know. So I played professional squash um, as... Uh, and I gave up about um, 25 years ago. And then I, I said to myself, I'll go back to playing squash if one of my kids picks it up. So we have uh, three teenagers. The eldest wasn't interested. He's a basketball player. Our daughter is a dancer. And the little one, two years ago, picked it up. So two years ago, after almost 25 years, I went back to playing. Uh, so yes, I'm playing again. Not very well, but playing. Okay, help me understand squash. It's similar to what sport and what are like the basic rules? Yeah, so it's like racquetball or essentially you, know, you take a tennis course and you fold it into two and you have it in a, 
in a confined space in a room. Okay. So it's you know it's very fast, very uh, uh, demanding, a lot of fun. And and uh, just a plug for squash. About a month ago, it officially became an Olympic sport. So bravo, bravo! Oh. Now I wish it would have been twenty years ago. You could have taken a run, huh? My yeah, yeah. That was my dream as a kid, but didn't didn't happen. It's okay. How did you even get into that? Yes. Yeah, so um, for me, it was uh, in many ways love at first sight. When I was um, uh, five or six years old, I already told my parents that what I'm going to be when I grow up is a professional athlete. And um, you know, I was passionate as I am today about about sports. Initially, it was going to be basketball. But um, at about the age of eight, I stopped growing, or at least growing much. So um, that was out the window. Then I did tennis, and I did you know, running, and you know every kind of sport, you know that I could get my, my my hands on. And then I went with a friend to play squash when I was I was twelve or almost twelve, and I knew this was it. I was I just connected and loved it. And, and my friend's father, who took us to play said to me, you know, but if you want to be a really good player, you have to practice for three hours a day. And within a week, I was on court three hours a day. And again, I don't know where he got that three hours from, right. but, you know, it was an authority figure for me at that time. So I, I followed his uh, advice. Here's a question for you out of the gate. You're, you're very accomplished in your life. You've got many degrees, you lecture, you've got this master program. Is there anything to three hours a day? So there is a lot to, and you know, you you and many others have, have probably heard about the, the ten thousand hour. Yeah, rule. right. Yeah. So um, so to become an expert, on average, we need around uh, 10,000 10, hours. So I guess if you think about it, um, you know, three hours a day, you know, about you know a thousand hours a, a year. Within ten years, you become an expert. So, so yes, uh, having said that, there's a lot of new research and new findings around uh, peak, ex peak performance in, uh, yes. Yes. In, in sports, but not just in sports. So, you know, whereas before people thought, yeah, you should, you know, play for or swim or, you know, hit the tennis ball for, you know, six hours a day or eight hours a day. Today, we're looking more into intensity. So, you know, if you swim for two two and a half hours a day rather than six hours a day, but but do high intensity interval training, it's as effective, possibly better than, you know, swimming for six hours a day. You know, I, I think about what I do today, uh, writing. Um, it's not healthy to write, you know, 10 hours a day. It's better to write, you know, three hours a day and maybe, you know, two sessions of 90 minutes each, but the intensity actually matters more than the duration. All right. I like it. I like, listen, I'm a, I'm a youth hockey coach. And so I certainly love to know these things and learn these things. And, and a lot of what we're being taught right now as coaches in the youth hockey movement through USA hockey is kind of what you just said, it would be better for you to just be, you know, short and shorten the duration of some of yeah. these things, but make them more intense. So intense. they're more game like and situational. It makes exactly. a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, all right, I want to move into some of the stuff that you get to, to do every single day, which is to help all of us. And I'm going to cycle through some books here on 
uh, just above him for those of us who are watching on YouTube. And you'll notice a theme, you know, you'll notice a theme here. <laughs> that word happy shows up, happier. And um, you don't know this about me, Tal, but uh, a couple of years ago, I walked away from my radio and television career because I had experienced extreme burnout, mm. uh, depression. I mean, like my life was so out of whack that everything was manifesting physically, backache, shingles, panic attacks. Like it was a disaster for me. And I knew I had to make a really dramatic change. And I know you've been through something similar mm. where you experienced the depression and then you thought to yourself, how do I battle my way out of this? But really intelligently, like almost scientifically, how do I, you know, and so you went to work on this and you've done a ton of work on happy. So I, I wanna hear some of the things that you pass along to your own children and your own, like the people closest to you. What are those deep, dark secrets that you're sharing with those folks that maybe the rest of us don't get to hear all the time? Yes, yeah, so, so they're not deep and dark. No. They're even in a sense, you know, shallow and certainly, well, hopefully they can bring light. Um, so, you know, there, there, there were two, if I can go back a little bit to, you know, to the squash and to another experience, there were two points in my life when, uh, when I realized that you know, something was not working, that I needed to, you know, uh, change my ways. Uh, one of them was around squash and specifically so, so, you know, so I was playing hours every day. It was my passion. I really did love the sport and yet I was unhappy. Uh, but I told myself uh, for years, it's okay. I understand why you're not happy. You know, you're working really hard, putting a lot of effort. When you win the national championships and, you know, I lived in Israel at the time, when you win the Israeli national championships, then you'll be happy. And I worked towards it and I got close and then, and then further and then closer and then eventually you know years later i won the the national championships and i was indeed very happy you know i would even say ecstatic um at you know the happiest moment in my life at least until that day and then i was happy for about four hours okay because after four hours i went back to where i was before you know thinking to be really happy it's not enough to be the national champion i need to be the world champion Good. And um, as soon as I had that thought, you know, I was, I was, a, you know, in my, I was not even 17 years old then, I thought something's wrong here. You know, for four years, I basically functioned based on the belief that when I win this championship, I'll be happy. And then four hours later, I'm already thinking of the next goal. Right. But, but I don't think I was mature enough to really understand what was going on. And that's when the second um, point comes for me. So I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard studying computer science. And I found myself in my sophomore year doing very well academically, doing very well in sports. You know, I continued to play squash through college, uh, doing quite well socially and miserable. And at that point, and, and I remember, you know, it was a, a, a very cold um, Boston winter morning. And I woke up and I said, something's not working here. And I went to my academic advisor and I told her, I'm switching majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science. Uh, and ju just so you understand, you know, throughout my high school and, you know, first year of college, I was always doing the sciences. You know, my, my father's an engineer. My mom is a microbiologist. You know, I'm 
I was always, you know, good at, you know, math, yeah. computers, physics, you name it. Never right. even entertained the humanities. As far as I was concerned, humanities is something that you had to do in order to graduate. That's it. Got it. Uh, and the, 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 the less, the better. I went to my academic advisor and telling her I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And yeah. she said, why? You know, knowing my background and, and what I was interested in, I said, because I have two questions. First question, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? Mm. And it's with these two questions that I then, you know, studied that, went over to the other Cambridge, studied education, when, you know, went back to Harvard for my PhD all the time, focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, uh, couples, families, and organizations increase levels of well-being. So what did I find? Um, the first thing that I found, of course, was that success has nothing to do with happiness. Uh, Boy, that... and what's great about that, if I might just pause you really quick, is I love hearing that there's some science behind what actually happened to me, right? Like I grew up in a family where, you know, whatever, it was what it was. And I went on to achieve things that nobody in my family had done before. I'd made more money than I ever made before. I had the big house, I had the fancy cars with three little letters, you know, I had all of the things and I was freaking miserable, man. It mm. was like, what's wrong here? I have everything all the people say you're supposed to want and none of it is actually making me happy. So I love that we're having this conversation. So go ahead, keep going. And, and, and initially I thought, okay, so there is absolutely no relationship between success and happiness because, you know, I, I've experienced this and I saw it in research, of course, on whether it's on people who just got their tenure, you know, at university, you know, a dream come true. And again, they experience happiness for hours or at most, you know, days or weeks. Um, or uh, lottery winners. Yes. You know, dream come true. This should change everything, right? Not so. Or, um, or uh, people who have uh, literally fulfilled their lifelong dream, all temporary spike in, in, in levels of well-being. Success doesn't lead to happiness. But what I discovered later was that there is a relationship between the two variables and actually a very strong relationship it's only the opposite of what most people think. Okay. It's not success that leads to happiness, but rather happiness will lead to success. So if you find things that you're passionate about, you're much more likely to be successful. If you, um, if you increase levels of well-being, even by a little bit, you become more creative, more productive, more engaged, not to mention healthier and enjoying better relationships. Um, so that's, I think, a very important is that kind of like, can I, can I, I'm going to bring in like the foo-foo side of things. You know, you people talk about, um, and, and, and I, I love this kind of language, so I'm not busting on it at all, but you know, this idea of like putting it into the universe and like, honestly, when you get into your flow state and you find that thing you love and it just, the time doesn't seem to matter. And when you can be in that state of mind and in that flow, things do tend to come to you. They start to show up for you. At least that's been my experience. And you're, you're telling me there's something to that, right? Yeah, you know, so my sophomore year, when I switched from computer science to uh, psychology, the first paper I ever wrote on, uh -huh. uh, in a psychology class was on flow. And the reason why I love that concept is because someday I saw science behind, you know, what I thought was, you know, again, the, the foo-foo stuff, as you say, yeah, right, right. I thought was, you know, mystical or esoteric. 
But there is actually a science behind it showing that when you are fully engaged in what you do, two things happen. One is peak experience. You're having an amazing time. You're in the zone, in the, in the, in the flow of it. You know, time flies. You, you don't even feel, you have no concept of time. So that's peak experience. The second thing that happens is peak performance, meaning you're at your best. And that's when, you know, good things happen in terms of, uh, of your, your success. Things fall into place. You're suddenly um, seeing things that you didn't see before. You're noticing uh, a lot more. There's a lot of research by um, the likes of uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi on flow, uh, Alan Langer on, uh, on, on mindfulness, showing how this state leads to, again, your, your most enjoyable experiences and your best experience in terms of performance. Okay, it's really exciting to have this conversation and know that it's here. It's just such a difficult thing for for some folks to latch on to that idea of, you know, yeah, like I'll just do whatever makes me happy. Like I like to sit around and watch TV. Okay. There's a difference between the the two things, right? Like and 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 you know, and, and I say this when I go and I talk to people, I bought into this concept that I was a parent. Now I had two teenage sons. I had a house. I had, a, you know, the mortgage and the car payments and I had all the things. And like my happiness wasn't important anymore. It wasn't about me. And what, what was spooky was I actually started to get really comfortable with that. And I think a lot of people mm -hmm. fall into that trap. They get real comfortable with like, all right, you know, in, in the words of every man I've ever met, suck it up, buttercup. Like this is what it is now. <laughs> but that doesn't have to be all there is and you can actually choose something different and find what makes you happy again even if it has been a while since you've been happy so how do you suggest people you know sort of segue out of that mindset yeah so first of all it's important to define happiness because right. you know what you just uh, said here is that oh okay so it means that i just veg out in front of the TV or, you know, I just lie down on the beach because it makes me happy. Right. Well, that's a very narrow and unhelpful definition of, of happiness, which is unfortunately uh, pervasive, meaning most people equate happiness with pleasure. I was so happy I was on the beach or, or you know, I had this ice cream made me so happy. Uh, no, it gave you pleasure. Happiness is much more than pleasure. Pleasure is just you know, one element of happiness. What are the other elements? Uh, so let, let, let me count the ways. Uh, the first element of happiness is um, what I call spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being is about, uh, of course, some people find it in, in religion, but more generally, it's about a sense of meaning and purpose in life, which you can find in you know, a, a, a house of worship, you can also find it in work that you find meaningful. So meaning and purpose. Uh, you can find it at work. You can find it with your, your family. So that's the first element, spiritual well-being. You also find it when you're present, when you're in the here and now. So when you're you know, present to, a, uh, to the breath going in and out in meditation and where you, or when you're present in, in conversation with another person, that can be a spiritual experience. So it's purpose and presence, spiritual well-being. Second element of happiness is physical well-being. Physical well-being uh, is about exercise. You know, for example, that regular physical exercise, that's 30 minutes three times a week, not that much. 
has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Wow, wow. Um, so that, that that thing that's starting to bubble up right now about exercise being the uh, the, the most underprescribed medicine in exactly, medicine right now is exactly so true. Right. Exactly right. And and um, so it contributes to, it, by the way, it doesn't just contribute to your happiness, it con contributes to your ability to, to think, to concentrate. You know, there's a lot of talk, obviously, today around uh, learning disabilities, around uh, ADD or ADHD. And the numbers have gone up, and they've gone up not just because we're measuring better or there's more awareness of it. Yeah, that, that, that's part of it. A lot of it is because kids and adults have become more sedentary. I mean, think about when you grew up, um, you know, in Minnesota, you were um, a lot more active, whether it's on the ice or in the summer, you know, running outside and playing whatever, football, soccer. Right. All um, of it. All of it. You know, that, that was my childhood. Today, what do kids do in the afternoons? Mostly on screens. And they, we pay a very high price for it because uh, a major part of, of course, physical health and mental health has to do with how physically active or inactive we are. So that's physical well-being. Also, nutrition matters uh, matters a lot to to happiness. Um, rest and recovery, whether it's sleep, whether it's it's time off. You know, you, you mentioned earlier about experiencing burnout. Yeah. You know that there are today, post COVID. Billions, not exaggerating here, billions of people who experience burnout or some form of meltdown. Um, and the statistic um, I have is 40% of all workers right now are experiencing some form of burnout. So yeah, billions yeah. of people. Billions of people worldwide. And, and again, it is worldwide. So yeah. it's not just the US. You know, you find it in, in China, you find it in Australia, you find it in, in, in Kenya. Literally all over the world, it's it's uh, the World Health Organization is talking about a pandemic of uh, of stress, and as a result of it, a pandemic of uh, burnout. Now, the reason, interestingly, is not just because we are more stressed, or stress is of a different ilk, a different type than it was fifty years ago. It's for another reason. It's because we do not have enough recovery in our lives. Because think about it, you go to the gym, you lift weights, you're stressing your muscles, not a bad thing. On the contrary, that's how you grow stronger, healthier. The problems in the gym will start when you don't have recovery, whether it's between sets or between workouts. So stress with recovery is good for you actually. You grow stronger, healthier, happier. Stress without recovery leads to breakdown, whether it's injury or burnout. Yeah. Boy, let's let's kind of knock this one around a little bit because uh, that's that busyness that happens to so many of us. You know, guaranteed, go out, go anywhere today and ask somebody how they're doing. And I promise one in three are going to say something about being busy, crazy busy, crazy got so busy. much going on. Right, right, right. And so, oh, man, and let's be honest, like, it's really, really hard. It's, but you got three kids. I have two kids. Anybody listening, you if you have children, you know how precious time is as a resource. And it is so hard to recover, to rest, right? Because you're 
you've got your job and then you're managing the kids and then there's probably sports or, you know, musicals or dance or whatever else you do. And it is hard. There are enough. There are not enough hours in the day. Mm. Sometimes it, it, it can feel that way. But one of the things that I'm starting to learn and challenge people on is like, well, you need to really think about what's in your life and what you're spending your time doing. Because I I almost guarantee there there's some room there. There's 30 minutes a day for you to pray or meditate or chill out or breathe. Like you can find 30 minutes for that if you really look and you get off the endless death scroll on your phone or something like that. But mm. how do you prescribe people unwrap that story in their head about, well, this is just how it is. Yes. So uh, let me share with you an experience that I had um, after our first, uh, our first son, David was, was born because that, you know, as it is for, for many people, a game changer, certainly in terms of what you do with your time. So until that point, you know, I was, I was, we'd been married for a few years I was, uh, you know, working very hard, uh, you know, on my my research, my writing, my teaching, but overall it was manageable. And then suddenly this little thing comes into being, and everything out the window, you know, right. changes radically. And I started to experience um, that things were, were were falling apart. And I must say, I, I along this falling apart, I started to experience guilt. Because somewhere in the back of my mind, it was, it's because of that little thing whom, you know, how can I, you know, quote unquote, blame him for, for, for doing what he's doing to my life. Yeah. I made him. Sorry. I said, I made him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm his dad. You know, I'm I'm supposed to, it's supposed to be amazing and incredible and, uh, and, um, and perfect. And this is where um, where I realized was the was the issue. So here's what I did. I said, you know, let, let me take a step back and look at my life at a whole as a whole. What are the things that I want to do that are really important for me to do in my life? And I said, okay, I want to spend time with my son. And you know, I put the number of hours that I want to spend with my son. And I was very clinical about it. I want to. Um, at that time, I was doing you know a lot of. Uh, I wasn't playing squash, but I was doing a lot of yoga. Uh, working out in the gym. So I put the number of hours that I want to do each one of them every day. And I, of course, want to spend time with my lovely wife because our relationship matters and we have incredible friends whom we love. So we want to spend time with them. And needless to say, work. You know, I'm a, um, I, I, I love, loved and love my, my work. So I wrote everything that I want to do with my life, you know, on a daily basis and it added up that I would need about between two and three days every day in order to get through all those things because sleep is also important, right? Yeah, right. So, um, you know, un- unrealistic, but that would have been the perfect scenario. And then I thought back to um, a child psychologist who wrote about the good enough mother, Donald Winnicott, the good enough mother. And I actually, for some reason, I, you know, I latched on to that good enough idea. And I said, okay, so perfect would be, you know, 70 hours in 24 hours, I would need to fit in. What would be good enough? Good enough in terms of spending time with my family, good enough in terms of workout, good enough in terms of work. And I I, I created a whole different, uh, similar list, but very different um, allocation of time next to each thing on the list. And I said, this is how I'm going to live my life now. Not perfect, 
not because it's not realistic, but good enough. And um, because, you know, good enough is good enough. And as soon as I shifted my mindset beyond, before everything else, as soon as I shifted my mindset from perfect to good enough, that made a very big difference in, in my life because my expectations changed. Such great advice. I, I had a, when I was in, I kind of started my anxiety and depression in like 2018. I started seeing a psychologist doing some talk therapy. Yeah. And this is one of the first things that he talked to me about was this mm. idea of good. And I actually think there's a book out there called Good Enough, where it is that idea of like, stop it. You, you can't go, you can't hit a grand slam at everything all day. Uh, you know, sometimes you need to bunt. And, it, and that's just got to be okay. And so you're right, it is sound advice, but it, but the ego, I think, gets in the way of, of, of that, doesn't it? And, well, it's two things getting, yes, it is the ego, ultimately. Yeah. And it's much more difficult to come to terms with this term when you're younger. So it's actually, interestingly, it's the only time that I essentially had a coup in my class at Harvard the students actually got very upset with me when I taught this concept. They said, you're compromising. You know, you're giving up on your, on your, on your dream, on your ideal life. And, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, I took a step back and I said to them, that's okay. You know, you don't have to agree with everything that I say. Just keep that in the back of, of, of your mind. And I suspect that when these, you know, 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds became 35-year-olds, <laughs> right? You know, maybe they'll remember what I said, you know, all those years uh, back. Yeah, it, it, well, yeah, because at the stage of life that they're in, I mean, you know, in your 20s, it is about get, getting all of it, getting as much as you can, learning as much as you can, mm -hmm. getting the job, working as hard as you can, making as much money as you can. I mean, you know, that's sort of the natural progression of mm -hmm. life yes. and how most people feel about it. Um, all right, let's get back to the ingredients to happiness. We've got the spiritual and the present, the physical, uh, the rest of recovery. Yeah. Uh, what okay. have we left off? So the first one is the spiritual. The second is the physical and rest yep. and recovery would be under that. The third one is intellectual. Okay. Now, many people don't uh, associate intellectual well-being with, with happiness. And in fact, it's not that, you know, the, the, the more intelligent or the more of an intellectual or the smarter you are, the happier you are. Not at all. You know, IQ has nothing to do with, with happiness. But there is something that does have to do with happiness, and that is curiosity. Mm, that's what I thought you were going to say. Just be interested in something. Ask questions, learn new things. Now, interestingly, curiously, um, curiosity doesn't just contribute to happiness. It doesn't just contribute to success, which it does. It <clears throat> also contributes to longevity. So you know the saying, curiosity kills the cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually does the exact opposite to human beings. So um, people who ask questions, who explore, actually live longer and are, are happy. So curiosity is important. There's another element of intellectual well-being which, which matters, and that is deep learning. You know, one would, um, today, there is very little deep learning because, you know, the average time people spend on a web page is literally seven seconds. You know, that's shallow. Uh, that's 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 browsing, that's, that's surfing. That's not yeah. going in in depth. 
And, um, and that's unfortunate because um, when we delve deeply, whether it's into a text, whether it's uh, into a work of art, whether it's uh, nature, when we delve deeply into something, we don't only learn, we also contribute to our overall well-being. So that's intellectual well-being, curiosity and deep learning. And then there is the fourth element, which is relational well-being. Number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Uh, relationships is, um, is also about uh, kindness and generosity, giving, you know, being a good person. One of the best ways to elevate our levels of well-being is to elevate others' levels of well-being. When we give, we receive. When we're kind towards others, we're indirectly being kind towards ourselves as well. So that's relational well-being. And the final element is emotional well-being. And yes, here, pleasure is part of the equation, of course. At the same time, it's also learning to deal with painful emotions. Because painful emotions are part and parcel of every life, including a happy life. Sadness, anxiety, anger, envy, frustration, you right. name it. Yeah. So learning to accept and embrace these painful emotions is actually an important part of a full and fulfilling life. Or to put it in another way, the first step to happiness is allowing in unhappiness. Why? Because when we reject these painful emotions, they just grow, they intensify. In the words of uh, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, what you resist persists. Yeah. I love this conversation so much. And, and how great to just spell out the ingredients and to, to for somebody listening to look at your life. And, and if something feels off, like you feel like you're burned out or you're in a rut, you know, have people call it a million different things. It's like, look at the spiritual elements of your life. Look at the physical elements, the intellectual, the relational, the emotional. And I can only speak for myself, Tal, which is to say my spirit was completely lost. I had to get mm -hmm. that thing back aligned, right? That was one of the biggest pieces mm -hmm. to this thing. I had stopped moving. Physically, I had stopped moving. That's why everything got jammed up and jacked up. Intellectually, there's that expression that knowing gets in the way of learning. I felt like I knew everything in my business and I didn't feel like I needed to learn anything new. So I became stale and stagnant. Relational, my relationship with my wife and kids and friends and family was piss poor at best and that was mostly on me just because of the state of mm -hmm. mind that i was mm -hmm. in and then when it comes to the emotions i didn't i didn't have a check on them i was so lost in what like felt like spinning in a million different directions like it was like how do you feel today i have no idea how mm -hmm. i feel today i'm i'm moment by moment with these things and so i'm here to say that everything that you're saying happened within me mm. and once i fixed those five things and put them back on the tracks boy did i start to experience mm. happiness i want to ask you a question how important and you can go back if you need to but how important is neutrality and happiness in that same conversation because I, I, there's a russell wilson book out where he talks about his mindset when he plays football and one of the things that he says that I really like is, I think it's more important for us to be neutral than positive. Um, and I, I like that idea because, yeah, he's right. In more times than not, like 
like you don't have to be positive in every situation. It might just be a time to be neutral. Mm -hmm. um, so give me your thoughts on positivity and neutrality and how you think they play in the sandbox together. Yeah, that, that's good. So psychologists, uh, many psychologists today uh, talk about um, emotional flexibility as uh, sort of the, you know, the, 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 um, the gold standard when it comes to, uh, to psychological health. And I, I, I must say, I connect to that. So what does it mean, psychological flexibility? It means uh, embracing and accepting when um, the fact that, yeah, most time things are fine, are okay. You know, I'm not experiencing a high, but, you know, I'm not a low. At the same time, also when I do experience, whether it's that anxiety or that deep sadness, you know, go with it, accept it, embrace it. You know, a word that, again, when I was in my 20s, I hated, and today I, I recognize the, the, the value of it, is the word surrender. You know, surrender yes. to the emotion, accept it, embrace it. You know, you're a human being. Of course, you'll feel sad at times. And, uh, and when you are experiencing positivity that high, you know, even if it's for a minute, Embrace it, celebrate it, how wonderful. And, um, and you know, the, the, the Buddhists talk about non-attachment. Don't be too attached to it. You know, flow with, uh, with the emotions. So, you know, neutrality, probably most of the time, or, you know, around that. Um, some of the time, wonderful experiences. Some of the time, painful experiences. That's, that is what leading a full and fulfilling life is all about. Mm. This is so good. A couple of things that I want to make sure I get in while, while I've got you here, because uh, I just love where your head is on a lot of this stuff. You write about the pandemic and social media negatively impacting all of us, obviously, but specifically teenage girls. I'm yeah. wondering, I don't have girls, and so I don't know if you have girls, but I, I'm, I'm always curious, what do you think the difference is there, and why hasn't it impacted teenage boys like it has girls? Yeah. So here is the thing. Yeah, it does impact teenage girls more than boys. However, however, teenage boys are affected radically as well. Uh, again, not just quite like teenage girls, but, but not in a good way. So let me, let, let me begin with general research on teenagers, okay. uh, both genders. And, and then let me move to uh, just talking specifically about girls because there is specific research about that too. So Jean Twenge, she's a professor at uh, um, University of San Diego, did research which basically builds on research that has been conducted for decades. Specifically, every five years or so, psychologists look at the mental health state of uh, uh, American teenagers for, for decades. And uh, by the way, this research was essentially replicated in different cultures, but, but Gene Twenge did it on, in the US. Okay. And what they found that every five years, you know, the mental health levels went up by 1%, down by 1%, you know, no real change over time, except for last time when they checked it, which was just pre-COVID. What they found that levels of um, depression went up by over 30% among teenagers. 30? Teen over 30%. And again, I'm not talking girls, boys, same. 
over 30% up depression and level suicide rates went up by over 30%. Now we had never seen anything like it over decades and decades of research. Now, Jean Twenge with her colleagues delve deep into the data, asking why, you know, what happened over the last five years that, 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 that made this uh, major difference. And um, she came up with one thing as the main, not the only, but the main cause. And mm -hmm. I quote, the ascendance of the smartphone. The ascendance of the smartphone. That was the time when kids were given smartphones at a young age, and it became um, an inseparable part of their lives. Now, before I continue bashing uh, smartphones or technology. I'm not against technology. On the contrary, I mean, we're chatting today thanks to technology. People are listening thanks to technology. You know, we have students in our academy from, uh, you know, 87 countries thanks wow. to technology. Yeah, great. So I'm not against technology. What I am against is the fact that we're no longer just using it, but we're being abused by it mm -hmm. because we don't have boundaries. And children, don't have boundaries and parents don't put boundaries on technol technology use by their children. And we're paying a very high price for it, whether it's, you know, in terms of the physical exercise, we're more sedentary, children are more sedentary because they're on that device. And also because not just physical well-being is affected, how about relational well-being? Instead of meeting face-to-face, -face, you know, we're chatting on, you know, whatever, Snapchat or, or, or Instagram. And that's exacting a high price. So we, it's okay to allow our children to use, you know, if, if, if I, if I, in a perfect world, again, perfect versus good enough in a perfect world. Yeah. My, my kids would not have phones, but, but then they wouldn't have friends in today's world because it's on Snapchat that they say, okay, let's meet, you know, uh, in town. Um, I happened to meet to my daughter just, uh, on, on, on Sunday couple of days ago mm. where, um, you know, she, she said to me, you know, she, I'm, 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 I'm working today. I'm, I'm just going to put the phone away for the whole day. And they had, um, they had an event and they changed the time and she missed it. She missed seeing her friends because she wasn't on the phone. So I'm not saying, you know, go to the extreme, but less boundaries on technology, te technology use. Now to the girls in uh, specifically. You know, two of my uh, students, uh, two uh, young women, wrote their senior theses on self-esteem, because I did my PhD on self-esteem, so, you know, naturally, students who wanted to write on it, you know, came to, to work with me. Two young women wrote their senior theses in college on the impact of self-esteem on, uh, sorry, the impact of um, technology and modernity on self-esteem of women the impact of it w was radical. Why? Because what do we see through technology? We see, you know, photoshopped ideals of, you know, and, and or, or we see that, you know, the supermodels as, as the ideal. And how can I compare to that? So immediately self-esteem goes down. And again, it affects men as well. However, women much more so than, uh, than men and girls even more so than women. 
because you know they have less of you know a filter of being able to say okay this is photoshopped or okay so there are you know eight supermodels but you know there are you know four billion women normal quote unquote so it really is affecting and again it's affecting girls more than boys we, we see it with boys as well because we see the numbers of eating disorders among teenage boys is rising so this unhealthy unrealistic uh comparison is exacting such a high price and this is what we're seeing because what do people post on social media they don't post you know their you know how usually how they look first thing in the morning or they don't post you know in a, a, an angle where you can see those you know cellulites or you can see the imperfections or if you can see the cellulites they're easily photoshopped in two two seconds and um so we're not seeing human beings we're seeing uh distortions of uh, of humanity and that's what girls women boys and men are comparing themselves to this has got to be real because i feel like we've been having this conversation for maybe 20 years about photoshop and what you know all of the things that are that are taking place and i guess maybe now we we are and you can see it on social media to a degree right you can see people no, hashtag no filter it's a big thing mm -hmm. like people mm -hmm. are starting to yeah. embrace it uh you know we've uh, i got this other podcast called i needed that and we showcase pictures and from from people who you know were three four five six seven hundred pounds and have lost a you know a bunch of weight and they've they've posted the the all the photos and uh so i i know we're trending in a direction where at least we're starting to become starting. more aware of it but what do you recommend so here's a great question as a dad to this teenager what do you say to her about self-esteem and its relationship to the cell phone because you can't just go hey so i i did all this research and check this out like what teenager is yeah. going to listen to that so what do you what do you say to her to try to make an impression to get her to change her behavior so you know uh, at some point in my in my classes i um i i say the following to my to my students i okay. say to them look ever since the book the secret came out yes. i've been asked um what is your secret to uh to happiness and my response to that is come on you know i'm not some self-help or new age guy there is no secret to happiness there are actually three secrets to happiness okay. and then, you know, everyone's curious so what are the three secrets to happiness and i say okay here is secret number one to happiness secret number one to happiness is reality secret number two to happiness reality do you want to guess secret number three to happiness you got uh, it reality reality yeah so what i do with my with with my children is reality check yeah and part of the reality check begins with me you know i mean my children know what i do for a living you know i'm a professor of happiness and i share with them when i struggle and when i'm feeling down and um when 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 um when my life is not you know rosy and happy and and and, and lovely and they know that because i want them to understand what reality is all about and then i highlight for them and you think that person who's on that you know post you know their life is always as happy as they look and always as perfect as it looks of course it's not and I remind them not to forget to also celebrate what is going well. 
Because, you know, when you're comparing yourself against a perfect standard, you can't win. And whatever, because it's perfect by definition, it can't be better than that. So you're always looking on the downside. Oh, I don't have, you know, um, you know, his, his, his biceps or, uh, you know, I'm not as uh, successful as he is. And you can always find ways to downward comparison. And that's why this very simple exercise, which has become in, in many ways a centerpiece of uh, the field of positive psychology, gratitude. What are you grateful for? Yeah, I mean, your, your biceps may not be as impressive as, as, as his. What, can, what are you grateful for? And to remind ourselves on a daily basis the things for which we're, we're, we, we're grateful for. And that can make a very big difference because if you do it consistently, your mindset becomes an appreciative mindset. And that's a much healthier way to go through life than the depreciative mindset, which so many of us have adopted as a result of impossible comparisons. Yeah, this is so good. Well, and, and to kind of summarize one of the things that you said, it's like, it's not so much about what you say to your daughter, it's about how you model the behavior yeah. and how you show her when you're not in the in the goods, right? Because it could be pretty easy for somebody to say, you're the professor of happiness, bro, what's wrong? <laughs> and, but you're saying, hey, listen, that's part, part of the reason I, I can be so happy is because I feel it when it comes, which is such a, uh, it's a really, it's a nice thing to hear. It's a really difficult thing to, yes. to kind of cycle through. Be, and, and mostly if we wanna equate it to something that you said earlier, because we don't have the damn time to go through these tough emotions because you know what sometimes it takes hours days weeks even to cycle through life's challenges you take losing a loved one for example mm -hmm. that's not a 24-hour fix that's three years five years ten years maybe a lifetime of always having a piece of grief about that person but if as what i've come to understand is the difference between healed people and those who feel broken is just that the healed people, they, we settle into our tools. We, we recognize that we've learned something and then we grab that tool out of the toolbox and we use it. Yeah. And whatever that is for you, that's that's what I think people have to latch onto. It's like you said, you're gonna feel all this stuff. How do you manage it when it shows up? And when you can get a grip on that, that really does change your outlook on on almost everything. Um, I want to mention you've got the Happiness Academy and uh, we've been scrolling it at the bottom the whole time. And as we sort of wind down our conversation, um, why would somebody want to take this course? What do you think they would get out of this course? And then is it Moby Dick or is it like happiness for dummies? Well, help us understand <laughs> what the class is like. <laughs> Yeah. Um, can I choose somewhere in between? Yeah, yeah. perfect. All right, perfect. I, I think yeah. I'll do. That. I'll go for that one. Um, so, um, the, the Happiness Studies Academy is really about helping individuals uh, become happier and helping them help others do the same. And um, towards that end, we have a, we have a certificate program, which is a, a year long. Uh, program, which is not too too um, intensive, and you know, a couple of hours a week, um, and then we have a master's degree, which actually the world's first master's degree in happiness studies, 
which is uh, much more in-depth. It's a two-year program through Centenary University, you know, fully accredited, of course. And, um, And that's where, you know, leaders or future leaders in this field come in. And we have uh, uh, teachers and coaches and therapists, medical doctors and lawyers. We have um, parents, you know, who came in just because they want a happier family. But we really delve deeper looking at the psychology of happiness, looking at what philosophers had to say about it. Um, uh, theologians, uh, what, what, what does economics have to teach us about happiness? So we really look at uh, happiness from um, multiple uh, perspectives and um I, I must say this is um I, I i love teaching these uh both the certificate and the um the master's degree because i tell my students i'm not just teaching this i'm journeying along with you as a as as a student and it's uh you know it's 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 a fun topic obviously it's an important uh topic and it applies to every area. So if you're, a, you know, a, a manager or if you're a, a, a coach or a, or a partner in a relationship, it's relevant to all of these domains and more. Fantastic. Well, listen, I'm going to pop this up on the screen. That is an Instagram post that you made recently about the Masters of Arts and Happiness study. So folks can check that out and follow. And we'll have all of this in our show notes so that you can find it easier and then just link to it. But I would encourage everybody at a minimum to start giving this guy a follow on his Instagram account to see what he's pumping out there. Because as you've heard today, man, there is a like, honestly, we, we there's a way to do this. There's a way to feel so broken down, lost, depressed, whatever words you want to use. There's a way to feel all of that stuff. And then moment by moment, little step by little step, start to break yourself out of it. And I think the foundation that you've laid for us in today's conversation is incredible. And I can't even imagine what it's like to spend a year or two years with you. And so we'll encourage everybody to check out that as well. Um, Tal, I always like to wrap up with a real boring question just to get to know you a little bit more. What are you doing tonight? Like what's on the dinner menu? What what are you doing with the kids? Like what's dad life like for you? Yeah. So, you know, it's very simple. We're going to have dinner. We're going to have dinner together. And uh, these are the V precious moments. You know, I mentioned earlier, number one predictor of happiness, quality time you spend with people you care about and who care about you. So uh, we're going to we're going to sit down and uh, I'm going to hear what happened in, in school for uh, the two kids who are still uh, in school. And we're just going to just going to talk, just talk. You know, it's a it's a lost um, lost art. And uh, there's a lot of science showing that this art is important to regain. Well, you said it, relational, right? It's it's one of the key ingredients to the whole thing. Yeah. And finally, since I'm going to ask, since I've been hearing him uh, bark in the background, pets are one of the cool things that people can <laughs> add to their life that actually does help out with happiness. So what's your dog's name? Yeah, so we have two dogs, uh, Fluffy and Shushu, very sophisticated <laughs> names. <laughs> yeah, uh, awesome. and uh, yeah, it is it is an important part of, uh, of happiness. Actually, I had students who wrote their uh, PhDs on uh, on pets and happiness. A couple of them in general, you know, one in particular on uh, on dogs. So um, yes, important right, part man. of happiness. 
Last question is uh, really for your benefit and the benefit of the readers. Uh, the Joy of Leadership is one of the books. Happier is one of the books. Uh, this one is one of the books. This one is one of the books. What's a good place for people to start with you from a reader's perspective? Yeah, yeah so actually I would start with my last book. And, uh, and then if, if that is of interest, uh, continue. My last book is Happier No Matter What. And in it, I... I actually share the model that I shared with you, the spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, or okay. in, uh, in short, it's the SPIRE, S-P-I-R-E. I'm, I'm big on acronyms. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think this is a good uh, introduction to the field of, uh, of happiness, happier no matter what. Love it, man. What a pleasure to talk to you, Tal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do. We have three goals with Learn From People Who Lived It. One, to help you feel less alone. Two, encourage you to seek out a coach, a therapist, a church, anyone who can help you get through your journey and find some healing. Three, when you're ready, share your story with us. Find Learn From People Who Lived It wherever you get podcasts. Search it using all one word. Learn from people who lived it. So when it comes to the Kept app, I'm super excited to announce that we are finally releasing a completely free version of the app to anybody who wants to see how the app can change your life. And so we've opened up all these different modules from steps tracking to breathing tracking to sleep tracking to mindfulness. We even included a completely free 28-day workout program so you can just jump in there and start changing your life now. And if you want to upgrade to premium, just jump in for a seven-day free trial. So there's, there's no commitment at all. See if it works for you. But I have a feeling you're absolutely going to love this app. And now you can jump on it for free. And you can stay on it for free as long as you want. As long as you're changing your life, that's all that matters to us. So I hope you love the Caps app. And then, of course, in the meantime, if you want to try some of the premium features, again, just a seven-day free trial. That's it. So we've got everything that you need right there with the Caps app.